So praise the Lord. Pastor Daniel is on vacation, and uh, I've been tasked with preaching the word this morning and delighted to be able to do that. So be in prayer for him and for his family, especially they've been fighting a lot of sicknesses. So uh, just remember to keep him in prayer, okay? Praise the Lord. Well, let's get into the message this morning. In 1860, all of you probably know, Abraham Lincoln was elected to be the 16th president of the United States, but his election was not one that was endorsed by all of the country. In fact, in the entire South, he did not win a single state. And the opposition to Lincoln was so vehement that a a plot was hatched to assassinate him before he was inaugurated. Maybe some of you don't know that. That plot was detected and it was thwarted. It failed. This was, of course, a time of great unrest in our nation. Slavery and states' rights were hot-button issues and would ultimately lead to the war between the states. The consequences of Lincoln's election were inevitable. The nation divided. One by one, 11 states in the South seceded from the Union, and the Confederate States of America was formed. And so the United States, only some 85 years old, was divided into two, the North and the South. The history of Israel, as recorded in the historical books, particularly 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles, which we'll be looking at today, tells a story of a nation divided as well. Following the reigns of King David and his son, King Solomon, something of a golden age in Israel's history, the nation was torn apart. But this division was, in fact, brought about by the hand of God, as we'll see. Today, our text is a pretty broad one. We're going to be looking at part of chapter 11 of 1 Kings, all of chapter 12, and part of chapter 13. So I hope you're not in a hurry to get home today. No, I'm just kidding. I'm going to jump around in Scripture. What I'm going to do this morning is I want to summarize what the content of these passages from these three chapters, and then we'll go back and look at specific verses and see what we can learn from this. I want to look at the two kings that are mentioned here who followed Solomon and ruled over this divided kingdom at the very outset of that new configuration. I want to look at the things that they did, the decisions that they made, the actions that they took, and the consequences of those actions. And I believe we'll gain some insight from their examples in our own walk and to help us in our own walk with the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with these passages, I'll tell you from the very beginning that their examples were not good ones. They were not good ones. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that everything that is recorded in the Old Testament, it was then in his time the the entire Bible because the New Testament had not yet been completed, of course, He tells us that everything that was recorded is for our instruction. He was speaking specifically in that passage about what happened under Moses' leadership, but that principle applies 
The things that are recorded here are for our instruction. So let's look at these chapters in First King, Kings. Just as the Civil War in our own nation did not happen in a vacuum, there were things that led up to it. There were issues that were brewing for many years prior to the election of Lincoln in the beginning of the Civil War. The same thing is true about the nation of Israel dividing into two. There were things, circumstances that were occurring that led to this, beginning all the way back to Solomon. Solomon, it says, was the wisest man in all of the earth. But in his lifetime, particularly toward the end of his lifetime, he fell. He fell out of faithfulness to God. He began to incorporate things that were part of the pagan religions by many of the, uh, because of many of the wives and concubines that he took uh, into his kingdom. And as a result, the people of Israel began to chase after idols. So we see in chapter 11 of 1 Kings that there is a prophet in this time named Ahijah. And Ahijah encounters a man named Jeroboam. We read in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 29, Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them, Ahijah and Jeroboam, were uh, found on... uh, The two of them were alone in the open country, excuse me. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces, for thus says the Lord the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. So Ahijah tells Jeroboam that he is going to become king over Israel. He promises to establish the kingdom under Jeroboam if he's faithful to serve him. Verses 37 and 38 and 11 And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And if you will listen to all I command you, walk in my ways, do what's right in my eyes, keep my statutes and my commandments as David did, I'll be with you and build you a sure house. But before any of this happens, before the kingdom splits, we see at the beginning of chapter 12 that Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is established as king over the entire nation. So there's Jeroboam and there's Rehoboam. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Sometimes it's easy to get them mixed up, as I found when I was preparing my notes and had to go back and scratch out who was king over what. But but Rehoboam is established as the king over all Israel before this nation is divided. It says in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Jeroboam returns from Egypt because he had become an adversary of Solomon. He had fled from him, although he was once his servant. He returns from Egypt, and he appears before Rehoboam on behalf of all the people of Israel. And he says to them, or he says to Jeroboam, 
Can you lighten the load that your, son, or that your father Solomon placed upon us? He pleads with Rehoboam. This had to do with a forced labor that had been imposed by Solomon. So when Rehoboam hears this, he seeks the advice of his father's counselor, who basically say, grant the request, lighten the load on them. Then he sought the counsel of, quote, the young men who had grown up with him, and their advice was to make the burden even heavier on the people. And with this decision, Rehoboam follows the advice of the young men, the die is cast, and the kingdom is divided. You could put the map up, if you will. You can sort of glance at that. This is what happens. The northern kingdom is continued, continues to be called Israel, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. Jeroboam rules over the northern kingdom of Israel. Rehoboam rules over the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeroboam, as he begins to rule over the southern kingdom, does a number of bad but significant things with regard to the order of worship among the Jewish people. And we'll look more closely at these in a few minutes, but just to summarize, he makes two golden calf idols. He makes temples on high places outside of Jerusalem because Jerusalem is part of Rehoboam's kingdom. So he sets up two uh, high places for worship in the northern kingdom. He appoints priests who aren't from the tribe of Levi. Levi is the chosen tribe by God to serve as priests for the nation of Israel. But they have fled and gone to the southern kingdom. And Jeroboam appoints priests who aren't from the tribe of Levi. He changes the, the time of celebrating an important feast of, uh, of the Old Testament, namely uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. And he himself acts as a priest sacrificing on the altar at Bethel. All bad things. Finally, God sends an unnamed prophet in chapter 13 of 1 Kings to speak to the apostasy that's being perpetrated by Jeroboam. He speaks one of the most specific and remarkable prophecies in Scripture. In chapter 13, beginning in verse 2, the prophet cries out against the altar by the word of God and says, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has so spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. This prophet speaks about something that is going to take place 300 years or so from this time and specifically names the king, Josiah, as the one who will carry out the fulfillment of this prophecy. Then he gives an immediate sign, the destruction of the altar. Jeroboam is enraged. He seeks to arrest this prophet. He points his finger toward him and says, seize him, and his hand shrivels up. And then he cries to the prophet for him to pray for him for healing. And he does. He prays for his healing. Then the king offers him food and drink and a reward 
which the prophet refuses. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 13, the man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I will not go in with you, and I will not eat bread or drink water in this place, for so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying you shall neither eat bread nor drink water nor return by the way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way that he came to Bethel. The rest of chapter 13 tells of the fate of this prophet. It's a sad one. We won't go into that very much. You can read it for yourself. But he reneges on his commitment not to eat or drink because another prophet lies to him and tells him to come home and says, an angel of the Lord sent, told to me to tell you to come home with me and eat, and he does it. It costs him his life. Go back and read that chapter. It's an interesting chapter of Scripture. We won't go into it much today. So what are the takeaways from this tale of two kings, this tale of two kingdoms? What is it that it speaks to us? Let's take some time looking at that very thing. The first thing to note about what happens in this narrative is that God is at work in everything that takes place. Again, chapter 11, verse 31. Uh, Ahijah tells Jeroboam that God says, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. God was the one who initiated it. Chapter 12, verse 15 says, So the king did not listen to the people. This is speaking of Rehoboam after the decision that he makes to uh, make the load even heavier on the people. For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. God was at work in all of this. God's a sovereign God who rules over the affairs of men. Listen to the words of the, the prince of preachers, so-called Charles Spurgeon. He said, notice that God is in events which are produced by the sin and the stupidity of men. This breaking up of the kingdom of Solomon into two parts was the result of Solomon's sin and Rehoboam's folly. Yet, God was in it. This thing is from me, saith the Lord. God had nothing to do with the sin or the folly, but, it, but in some way which we can never explain fully, in a mysterious way in which we are to believe without hesitation, God was in it all. We see this multiple times in Scripture. One of the other great Old Testament examples of this is the story of Joseph. Joseph, the favored son of his father. His jealous and envious brothers sold him into slavery, and yet God delivered him out of slavery and put him in a position that was second only to Pharaoh in Egypt. And being in that position, he helped to save not only the people of, of Egypt, but many other regions, including Israel. He saved the race through which the Messiah would come. In Genesis chapter 50, after he reveals himself to his brothers toward the end of the story of Joseph, in the 20th verse he says, 
As for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The ultimate example of God ruling and overruling the affairs of men and using the sins of men and the folly of men is his plan of salvation. He used the evil plans of religious leaders, of the Roman governor, of Judas, to bring about salvation for men through the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is a sovereign God. But don't for a moment make the mistake of thinking that this excuses the sins of the people. It doesn't. The things that these two kings did were not in keeping with the principles of God's word. So we can look at the actions of Rehoboam and Jeroboam in the light of that truth and learn from these passages. First look at Rehoboam and what happens in chapter 12. He's crowned king of Israel at Shechem, succeeding his father Solomon. When Jeroboam comes to make a request on behalf of the people, Rehoboam hears him and then he takes counsel. And note this, that if you read through this entire passage, there's nothing said about Rehoboam seeking the counsel of God first, going before the Lord as his father would do and his grandfather David and other kings who would succeed him. Nothing is said about that. He doesn't seek the counsel of God. That's the first thing that we can learn, right? When we have a decision to make, the first thing that we should do is look to the Lord and pray to him and ask for guidance and direction. He uses the counsel of men very often, but that's the first place that we need to turn. Rehoboam does not do that. He seeks the counsel of men. First, he seeks the counsel of his father's advisors, the wise old men. And they tell him, speak good words to the people. Be kind to them. They said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, then, or when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But Rehoboam doesn't like that counsel. He rejects it out of hand. He abandons the counsel, the scripture says. And he turns to the younger men that he grew up with. And he seeks their counsel instead. Now the point here has much more to do with seeking wise counsel than it does with seeking the counsel of older men or women versus the seeking the counsel of younger men or women. Because wisdom does come with age. We know that and the scripture verifies that. But there are older folks who could give bad counsel and there are younger folks who can give wise counsel. So Rehoboam chose to listen to those with whom he grew up. He chose to place more value on the opinion of those he knew, his buddies, who evidently did not have the wisdom or maturity to make such monumental decisions. And we probably can read between the lines a little bit. They were his friends, and they probably thought to tell him what he wanted to hear. He was probably already leaning in that direction. So they told him what he wanted to hear, not what he should hear. The older men were the wiser counselors here. So 
in our decision-making. We need to seek the counsel of God first, and as we turn to others to receive counsel, turn to those who have proven track records of being wise, those who have proven track records of offering wise advice. Don't look for that which you want to hear. Look for that which you need to hear. Be objective. In addition to seeking godly counsel and wise advice, we need to lead with a servant heart. That's what the older counselors advise Rehoboam to do. In our spheres of influences and the places where we have some measure of authority or simply where we're in a position to act in a relationship with others, making decisions that will impact their lives, whether it's in our family, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's in our church, whether it's in some organization that we're a part of, we should seek to do what these wise counselors advise. Be a servant to the people and serve them and speak good words to them. We as believers should model servant leadership of the Jesus kind. We need to model servant leadership of the Jesus kind. And there are many qualities that embody this. Two of those were severely lacking, as I see it, in Rehoboam. First of all, he lacked humility. We need to walk in humility. We need to walk in humility. Pastor Daniel just spoke about that last week. Putting others before yourselves, thinking of others' needs before your own needs and your own desires. Rehoboam doesn't do this here. He takes actions that he believes will strengthen his position as the king over Judah. He takes actions that reject out of hand the older counselors. He presses the advantage that he has as the king, as the ruler, rather than listening objectively to the petitions that were brought to him by Jeroboam on behalf of Israel. We need to walk in humility. Rehoboam didn't. We also need to walk with empathy. That's lacking in Rehoboam also. He refuses to understand the point of view that's being brought to him by Jeroboam and the people. He's focused on himself and exercising his newfound power as the king and his newfound authority rather than having empathy toward the people. Instead, he demonstrates apathy toward them, a complete lack of concern with their plight. Doesn't care about them cares about solidifying his rule as king. We should ask ourselves, how do we respond in situations where we have it in our power to impact others? That should be our guideline, to respond with humility, to respond empathetically, not to be prideful, not to lack compassion, do we press our advantage? Do we flex our muscle, muscles and preen our feathers? Or do we take the high road by taking the low road, by being humble? A few Saturdays ago, 
Mark Tyndall, the pastor of Blue Root Vineyard Church, spoke to our men's breakfast, and he spoke about the fruit of the Spirit. And much of the fruit of the Spirit has to do with these things that we're speaking of, with humility. Much of the fruit is manifested in our relationship with others. Kindness, gentleness, patience, goodness, all of those things are in view here. They were lacking in Rehoboam. Something worth noting here also is that Rehoboam fails to heed one of the very things which his father Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs 15, chapter 1, Solomon wrote, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened in this situation. He answered with a harsh word. It stirred up anger, and the kingdom was divided. It's further irony is that in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, the very beginning of Proverbs, Solomon writes, Hear my son, and Rehoboam is listed in Scripture as the only son of Solomon. Maybe he had more who aren't mentioned, but maybe God prevented him from having more children, though he had a lot of wives and concubines. Rehoboam's the only son mentioned in Scripture. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. He failed to do that. It raises the question of influence that Solomon had on Rehoboam. It would appear that Solomon's actions spoke a lot louder than his words as he began to drift away in his behavior from following the Lord and being faithful to him. Maybe that spoke louder to Rehoboam. That's a sermon in itself. The idea of doing as I say and not as I do is one that does not wash when it comes to raising children and influencing others. So, after Rehoboam's choices split the kingdom, Jeroboam is established as the king of Israel, northern kingdom. And that's where I had to scratch out Judah in my notes and wrote Israel. That's how confusing it is at times when you're reading through this. You might think that Jeroboam would remember the words of Ahijah the prophet. He said, if you serve me faithfully, if you follow my commands, if you walk humbly before me, all those things that Ahijah said to him, I'll establish you as a king. I'll take care of it, God said. But Jeroboam proves to be faithless. He decides to take matters in his own hands. His actions create one of the most infamous or dubious legacies in Scripture. I mentioned earlier that he takes several measures that he believes will solidify his position as king over Israel and keep the people from turning back to Jerusalem and turning back to Rehoboam. He does this with total disregard for God and his word to him. I want to take a few minutes just to read this one passage in its entirety, verses 25 through 33 of 1 Kings chapter 12. 
Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. He's afraid. God told him he'd establish him, but he's afraid of losing people. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, their Lord, lowercase l, not the Lord God, but their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam and king of Judah. To Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Does that sound familiar? That happened years before when Moses was on the mountain and the people got tired of waiting for him to come down with the law and they rebelled and suddenly the next thing you know according to Aaron there's this calf of gold and he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan one calf in Bethel one in Dan to keep people from going back to Jerusalem. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests of high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. Note that. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. I don't think he could have done anything worse than what he did. I don't think he could have violated God's word to him any more than he did. Verse 28 says the king took counsel. And in doing a little research on this, I found that it literally means he took counsel with himself. He took counsel with himself. Rehoboam at least turned to the older men and who had advised Solomon and the younger men that he grew up with. Jeroboam takes counsel with himself. He decides on his own. He didn't even go as far as Rehoboam did. I wonder if we can be guilty sometimes of doing that ourselves. That we can be so protective of our own ideas, our own goals, our own plans, our own purposes, that we fail to seek God or even someone else's counsel and fool ourselves into thinking that we have all the answers. I don't know. And maybe that's not true of any of you here. But I think it's possible. Even for a believer, we get so wrapped up in our own world, in our own desires. I believe it's especially true if we're not in close fellowship with the Lord and with his people who can offer us wise counsel. Two times in Proverbs, twice this verse appears. There's a way that seems right to a man. It sounds good. It feels good. It looks good. There's a way that seems right to a man, 
but the end of that way is death. There's no life in it. It's not God's way. Jeroboam makes idols, golden calves. Behold your gods, O Israel. He does everything that brought the wrath of God down on the Israelites in the wilderness while Moses was on Sinai. Now, there are two different views about these golden calves. Um, Some conclude that Jeroboam was seeking to draw the people away from the worship of Jehovah, Yahweh, but some would not. Uh, Commentator David Gusick writes, it's possible, perhaps even likely, that Jeroboam intended the gold calves to represent the God of Israel. This wasn't the introduction of a new God, but a perversion of the proper worship of the true God. And one of my favorite commentators, Alexander McLaren, wrote, the true nature of idolatry is brought out in this incident. Jeroboam did not draw Israel away to worship other gods. No charge of that sort is ever made against the calf worship. The images were meant just as Aaron's, of which they were a reproduction to be symbols of Jehovah. The true object of worship was worshiped in a false way. No matter though the image represented him, its worship was idol worship. So whether he was attempting to draw people away from the worship of God or setting up something that represented God, it was still false worship. God had commanded, don't make any graven image. Don't make, don't, there's no other gods before me. This calf cannot represent me. Nothing can represent me except Jesus. Ultimately, he was the full representation of God. So Jeroboam sets up idols to encourage false worship of God and puts them in places not prescribed by God's word, namely Dan and Bethel instead of Jerusalem, for the convenience of those who would engage in this false worship experience. We're told in a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 11 that the Levitical priests, as I already mentioned, they refused to be part of this apostasy. They fled from there. They went back to Judah. And so, as a result, Jeroboam goes even further down this dreadful road of uh, perverting the worship of Yahweh and appoints priests who are not even from the chosen priesthood, and then he himself offers sacrifices on the altar. We may read these verses and say, I'm glad that none of that applies to me. Well, maybe. If we've been followers of Jesus, followers of the Lord for some time, and we know who God is, and we know what his word says, that may be true, but we should nonetheless be on our guard. And if you're newer in the faith, especially be on your guard. What do I mean? Verse 33 said that Jeroboam, verse 33 of chapter 12, says that he had devised this new holy day from his own Everything he had devised, really, was from his own heart. We have to guard against the trap of worshiping a God that we have devised from our own heart, making God in our own image, believing we know who he is internally. We have to be careful that we don't devise in our own heart 
a different way of worshiping him and a different place of worshiping him. Have you ever heard anyone say, and maybe you've said it yourself, I don't believe that God would, and you fill in the blank. I don't believe God would fill in the blank, whatever that thing may be. And it turns out that that thing is something that God clearly says he would do in his word. Have you ever heard someone say that? Or have you ever heard someone say, I believe what I heard, what I saw, what I experienced was God. When that experience is something that is contrary to what the scriptures say. There's a very serious lack of biblical literacy in our culture. Many believers don't know the Word of God or very little of what it says and what it teaches. Understanding who God is, understanding how He operates, primarily is going to come from this Word. We need to be careful to test the spirits, the Apostle John said, to see if they align with God's Word. We need to learn the Word, what it says, not fall for anything that you hear over the airwaves or a podcast or on television or wherever. Know it for yourself. God revealed himself in Jesus Christ. God reveals himself in his word. Understand who he is. I have to touch on one more thing. And I say this cautiously, and I don't want to offend anyone. But I do want to challenge us as a church. Don't concede to the mindset that says... I can worship God anywhere, true. So I don't need to be a part of the gathering of the saints. Not true. You probably know this scripture, but if you don't, or if you do, I'm going to read it anyway. Let us consider, this is Hebrews chapter 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I don't mean to draw a comparison to what was going on in Jeroboam's Israel, but you can't overlook the fact that people fell into worshiping when and where it was convenient. And some people do the same today. Now, COVID has wreaked havoc in the church. Churches all over America and around the world have seen attendance and people engaged, who were engaged with the congregations, gone. So very many people who were part of the local church are not there anymore. I fully understand the concerns 
that people have had, the caution that people have exercised. I know there are legitimate concerns that have kept people away. I know many elderly have pre-COVID and always have been shut in and can't come to be a part of the gatherings and part of the ministry of the church. We're streaming on Facebook this morning as we have done for two and a half years. Churches all over the world who didn't do this before have been doing it since COVID. But I want to challenge you. If none of those legitimate concerns apply in your life, if you're home watching this, if you're home watching this because it's become a habit and it's become more convenient, consider what Hebrews 24 and 25 says. 10, 24, and 25. If you consider Emmanuel your church home, come and worship with us. Come and be a part of the ministry here. If you're tuned into our live stream this morning and you've been a part of another fellowship but have fallen into the habit of convenient worship, go and worship again with your brothers and sisters wherever home is. You can go home again. God wants you. We need you. Don't stay away. I want to bring this to a conclusion by challenging us all to learn from the negative example of these two kings. Let's believe what God says. Don't be like Jeroboam and reject it. Believe what God says in his word and to us personally when he speaks to our hearts. And trust him to do what he says he'll do. Seek his face and his direction. Trust in the wisdom that comes from above. The Apostle James wrote in his book that the wisdom that comes from above is good, godly wisdom. Don't trust earthly, unspiritual wisdom. So what was the legacy of these two kings and their kingdoms? Well, Second Chronicles, chapter 12, verse 1, says, When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Although he ultimately did humble himself before God when the Lord sent hand sent Egypt against him, it didn't last. The last thing that's said about Rehoboam in the same chapter 12 of Second Chronicles and the 14th verse is this. And he did evil, for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. That's the last thing said about him. And if they think that's bad, look at Jeroboam. His legacy is seen throughout Kings and Chronicles. Each and every king who followed him as a ruler over Israel was evil. Every king in Israel's history after the divided kingdom was evil. Judah had a handful of five or six good kings, 
The rest of them were evil, but all of Israel was. Jeroboam's legacy, 14 times in the historical books, it says that this king or that king one was one that walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the God of Israel to anger. That's his legacy. Every bad king was compared to him. Let's make it a priority in our lives to leave a legacy of faith, of humility and obedience in pure worship of the one true God and in his son, Jesus, who came to die for our sins and was raised to give us new life. We're going to close in prayer, and then Elder Jim Thompson is going to come and lead us in the Lord's table. Father, thank you for the examples that we have, both good and bad, in your word, from which we can learn, from which we can, as your apostle Paul said, gain instruction. Thank you for the challenges that that they speak to our own hearts. Help us, Lord, to uh, walk each day in the light of your truth, seeking to be faithful to you by the grace of God of your, of your Holy Spirit and the strength of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, as we now reflect on the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus in receiving this supper that he instituted, renew us in our hearts and in our spirits. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.